Hello, everybody. Welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Now, what we do at Stand Up Tragedy is we invite people to stand up and do some tragedy. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a live show and a podcast uh, where we invite people from different parts of the arts to get up on stage and, and share what they think tragedy means to them. So I don't know what they're going to do uh, and they're going to tell you, they'll explain to you how it's tragic. Uh, I don't know how it's going to feel. We're going to go through potentially lots of different emotions. So should we should be prepared for that. When you walk down the street, Every day you could get hit by a car, that would be a tragedy, but you wouldn't expect it. Now here in this room, we should expect to see some tragedy. It's going to happen on this stage. We're prepared for it, so we should know about that. Um, and also, uh, we, what we like to do at Stand Up Tragedy is we like to make people laugh until they cry and cry until they laugh and create a safe space for people to talk about unsafe things. So yes, uh, so now we're going to go into a brief sad min section, I'm afraid, uh, where I'm going to tell you about what Stand Up Tragedy are doing here in Edinburgh this year. We're doing uh, 7.30 every day at the Banshee Labyrinth. We've got a different lineup every night. Uh, but sometimes we've even got guest hosts uh, and we've got uh, special con collaborations going on. So on Saturday, we're going to have the, the uh, sketch comedy group... Uh, Casual Violence will be doing a special night of tragic violence here in this room. Uh, on, and on uh, Sunday, we've got uh, the uh, Other Voices Cabaret that is like spoken word from people who are not like me, as in middle-class white men. Uh, yes, they're going to be doing other tragedies so we're going to have a night of that and then on Monday we've got guest host Keith Jarrett who's an amazing spoken word artist now also on Tuesdays there's no tragedy happening in this room if you come here on a Tuesday you will not see tragedy what you will see is me sitting on this, uh, a chair with a table in the middle somebody on the other side and we'll be having a conversation for my podcast Getting Better Acquainted which was mentioned in the Financial Times for some bizarre reason um, but yes uh, if, if, that, if, that makes, if that sounds good to you the Financial Times come uh, and if it doesn't, uh, well, I don't know why I was in this financial time, so I still come, because I, I have no idea why that happened. Yes, and I'm also, the other thing that Stand Up Tragedy are doing is they're producing my solo show, or I'm producing my own solo show, uh, which is called What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity. That's happening at 12.05 every day at the Cabaret Voltaire, apart from Mondays. Uh, if you think it's tragic in this room tonight, come to that, because it'll be even more tragic. There's, there's hardly any laughs in that show. It's about how uh, men are uh, damaged by society and how men damage people through society. So it's a nice, upbeat show. Yes. So that's happening uh, then. And uh, we are part of the PBH Free Fringe. So the PBH Free Fringe means that you can come in for free, absolutely no problem. You can leave for free, absolutely no problem. But, however, uh, you, you will be asked for donations at the end if you wish to, uh, to donate them. Uh, and that's because, you know, it costs a lot of money and, uh, to make art. And we're living in a time, really, when it's kind of pretty tragic in society society that all of the money's going out of everything um, and so if you can support the arts this is a great time to support the arts and on a personal level it's a great time to support me because I lost my job two years ago because of the cuts uh, so since then I've been trying to make it as an artist and guess what guys that's really really hard especially if you decide to come to take shows up to Edinburgh like two years in a row like a, a, a mad person which I kind of can say because I am uh, mentally uh, well I've got mental health issues yes right so um, yes uh, so we live in tragic times we will ask you for some tragic donations uh, at the end. You can find us on Facebook where you can make friends with the tragedy. That's the best way to treat tragedy. Make friends with it. You can follow us on Twitter at Stand Up For Tragedy. And if you want to tweet about the show, use the hashtag Tragic Moments and then we'll see it. If you want to say something nasty, don't use that hashtag and we won't see it. It'll be great. Right. 
So that is the end of the sad noon section. And now I'm going to bring on our first performer of the night. She is doing a show called Curiously Caffeinated at Chow... Chow Ch- oh, I don't know how to pronounce that. Chow Roma uh, at 1pm every day till the 31st of August. Put your hands together, everyone, for Joe Kofi! Thank you very much. Can you all see me all right? Because I can't see you at all. Um, yeah, so this is the first time I've told this story, basically. So um, apologies if it is a little bit garbled. Um, so basically, obviously, due to my condition, I've been in and out of hospital a lot as a kid. Um, I have a very visible disability, which is my height, that obviously draws a lot of attention to myself. My life has been very varied because of that. So I think that automatically entitles me to a major part in a Hollywood film. (laughs) That hasn't happened yet, which is a fucking tragedy in my eyes. (laughs) So it's not through lack of trying as well, because I really have, because the movie industry needs people like me, doesn't it, yeah? We've got Game of Thrones, we've got all sorts, yeah? It needs people like me, but it never is me, basically. So for years now, I've been trying to get my big break. So my first break sort of nearly came when I was about 21. And that guy, you know, uh, Warwick Davis, Willow, whatever. (laughs) So he came to my graduation ceremony. Now, at the time, that didn't strike me as weird, but it actually does now because he wasn't even at our university. (laughs) Hanging out at a graduation ceremony, which is a little bit weird. Spotted me, and uh, he'd set up an agency for short people in film. Um, So he decided to give me a call to see what I was doing, see if I wanted to be in the movies. So, um, you know, in my head as well, you have to remember, Edinburgh, that although you're seeing me with a, um, a very visible disability... Um, at the moment, in my head, I don't really see it. So in my head, I am Beyonce. (laughs) So I take on every single task in my life and do what Beyonce would do, basically. So when he called me about a role in the movies, I'm like, oh, man, I'm like Madonna in Desperately Seeking Susan. That's what he wants me for, doesn't it? Oh, he wants me as like, oh, what's her face in Silence of the Lambs? You know, yeah, that's what he wants me for, doesn't he? No, uh, what he wanted me for was a bearded lady in the floor advert. Tragic, yeah. So uh, that sort of came to an end. Uh, I also had a, a brief chat with a casting director about being um, a umpa-lumpa in the new Charlie and the Chocolate Factory film with, um, oh, what was his name? Uh, Johnny Depp. Yeah, so I went for a one-to-one casting with her for which she pointed out that I was actually too short to be a, an umpa-lumpa. <laughs> Tragic. <laughs> and um, basically that uh, she ended the conversation with, you're, you're basically a very intelligent young lady though, aren't you? Meaning that all Lumpa Lumpas are just thick as fuck. <laughs> so um, it came to my... I gave up movies after that, basically. So it came to my uh, shock when I got a call out the blue from a friend of mine who had disappeared and basically gone to work in the film industry. Now, he called me up and said, Joanna, uh, hi, are you working at the moment? Because basically we've got like Kevin Costner down, we've got Gary Oldman down, we've got um, Tommy Lee down. Uh, we're all making a film called Criminals, yeah? Uh, we're all making a film in London. And we wondered if you wanted to help out, yeah? I mean, who gets a phone call asking if they want to help out in a Hollywood film? I think on Beyonce, yeah? So I'm like, yeah, yeah, what do you want me to do? Really casually, just like tripping over it. And he's like, well, um, actually, uh, the, the problem is, is the other main part in this film is a 10-year-old child. 
Now, legally, they're not allowed on set at all, all the time. So we wondered if you could just come down and sort of when they're not allowed to be, so they can set the cameras to your height and stuff like that. Beyonce, I went, yeah, yeah, fine, no problem. <laughs> no problem. So the first day I turned up on this site, and you know, I'm, it's, it's, I take it into, I'm with, I'm with Kevin Costner. So my first task, basically, is to sit next to Kevin Costner, the bodyguard, and pretend to play piano as a 10-year-old child. But I can't actually look him in the eye because he's Kevin Costner, and you don't do that to Kevin Costner. Um, it suddenly dawned on everyone that this was all a little bit weird, <laughs> getting a short person down to stand in for a child um, and being blatantly upstaged by a 10-year-old child is a little bit strange. So all I could hear through someone's headpiece was the Hollywood director just shouting down the headpiece, I don't like her! I don't like her! So after that, I was removed from the set very politely <laughs> and told to sit on a box outside a house in Richmond for the rest of the day until my services were needed, which they weren't. So let's put this tragedy into some sort of perspective for you. I'd failed at being a 10-year-old stand-in in the movies, okay? The next day, it got a whole lot better, though. So um, I was introduced to my stand-ins, which uh, were, were my, my companions on the set. We went to an airfield. It was like the end of like, the filming with the big bits with the choppers and everything. Like, it was terribly exciting. So my stand-in and my boss um, was uh, the Kevin Costner lookalike, who was uh, an ex-military man who was, by his own, uh, own words, a little bit of a twat. His words, not mine. And uh, a beautiful model. And um, we were basically, just as a side note to this as well, um, the hierarchy, and I didn't know this until, the reason that I've been sat on a box, basically, in Richmond is because the hierarchy to movies is there's only a couple of chairs, so there's only, like, two chairs on set. One of those will go to the leading actor, and one of those will go to the director, and everybody else is expected to sort of walk around and, and work, basically, and sort of run to get things. But obviously, I can't do that. So when I got on set on this airfield, straight away, smack bang in Kevin Costner's chair. <laughs> now, this did two things, basically. Um, There's not really a lot people could do about it because there was nothing else, nowhere else for me to sit. So at the course of the next three days filming, sort of really ridiculous things happened. Like, you know, I was having choppers landed in front of me. There was, like, ambulances crashing through gates while I was dragged out of the way. I was dragged off a private plane while a, a postman from who was from Essex I pretended to put a, a gun to my head because I was being kidnapped and he was Gary Oldman standing. <laughs> so um, more and more, though, because I was sat on these chairs, the actual leading actor's chairs, people started to believe that I was a lead in this production. <laughs> it was fantastic. Even Kevin Costner himself, by the end of it, actually believed that I was bigger than Joan Crawford. <laughs> it was fantastic. It ended, sadly, with... Um, you know, people getting my coffee straight away, people bringing me dinner on set. Obviously, I never went to costume to change as into the clothes that a 10-year-old child should wear, so I was, like, head-to-toe in Gucci with massive shades, like, proper rocking it up at the side of the airfield. So it ended, sadly, it all came to an end when uh, my time in the movies, when uh, the leading actor on the last day uh, drove up the hill and um, sort of hanging outside, thought, you know, you know, he's a bit of a one anyway, a Spanish guy, I can't remember his name. <laughs> a Spanish guy anyway, I was like, hey, lady, you want to get in my car for a lift? I'm like, no, it's right. my mum told me I'm never allowed to speak to strange men. <laughs> like, totally hit it off. Get to my car, sit in the back for about ten minutes because I'm so important, I forget I've got to drive myself. <laughs> So you're all asking, where's the tragedy in this uh, this state? Well, basically, um, well, it did end well. So um, you know, but 
And basically, um, the film doesn't come out until next year, and uh, tragic point number one, I'm not in it. Uh, tragic point number two, I probably ruined it and made it so awkward for any short person ever in this industry <laughs> to ever be able to do that job again. And uh, tragic point number three, if I ever want to see the film, I've got to pay £10 like everyone else. So that was my uh, movie career done and dusted. So uh, as you say, uh, I am at Ciao Roma, uh, Joe Coffee doing Curiously Caffeinated. Please do come down and um, thank you very much for listening. <laughs> Joe Coffee, everybody! Okay, so now I'm going to bring our next uh, performer on. She is doing uh, some slots at Immigrant Diaries at uh, 10 p.m. at the Assembly Rooms, uh, which is happening until the 30th. Put your hands together, everybody, for Jing Lucy! Thank you. I'm Jing, and I was born in China, which has suddenly become very popular now since we were now uh, rebranded the whole new superpower. And it's quite interesting for me to see this Western influx of interest in my motherland, from the investors to the corporate people building new offices in Shanghai and Beijing, to people trying to learn the language that five years ago they thought was just the name of an orange. And it baffles me to see this interest and this, this eagerness to get into a country where it wasn't that long ago everyone was trying to get out. The Great Leap Forward resulted in a famine that killed 50 million Chinese people. The Cultural Revolution revolutionized, amongst the many other things, the Chinese education system by completely abolishing it. <laughs> the, Tiananmen, the Tiananmen Square massacre, which is some of the reasons my parents thought, yeah, it's probably time to get out of here when I was five years old. Now, I'm grateful for their decision, and I don't mean to shit on anyone's parade, but of all the places that they could have chosen to relocate, they chose Southampton. Now, Southampton is famous for two things, and that is the Titanic and Craig David. <laughs> so basically, things, yeah, things that sink without a trace. It doesn't bode that well for my career, so I tell people I'm from Winchester. Southampton was also a very culturally undiverse place to grow up in the 90s. Now, my mother is a very intelligent lady. She was, uh, she was an electrician in Shanghai and a college math teacher. And when she came to England, they looked at her CV and thought, oh, we've got the perfect job for you. You can be a cleaner. But she's one of many overskilled, overqualified migrant workers who convince themselves that they've come here to scrub toilets to live the Western dream. But it's not all bad. It's not a sob story. Because there's one special skill that immigrants get that they excel at beyond anyone else. And that is the ability to make their child the most unpopular kid at school. <laughs> now, when I came to England, I didn't speak a word of English. And neither did my mother, which was unfortunate because she became my dialect coach. And in, and in her wisdom, she decided so as not to overload me on my first day of school to teach me just two words in the entire English language that she thought would be able to save me in any applicable situation. Yeah, good idea you're thinking. It's all right, I'll share the secret. Those two words were me, toilet. <laughs> I think I could have managed better with just general nonverbal communication and pointing and gesturing and smiling and just, you know, general childhood skills that, that children do, but instead, no, my parents thought the only way she can make friends in this new country is just not to shit herself in public. <laughs> the other thing about being an immigrant is that we don't understand the quintessentially British things that you guys take for granted as local knowledge. So, for example, cream tea isn't a cup of tea with cream in. A hole in the walls that says free cash withdrawals isn't going to churn out free money no matter how long you queue. And a, pic and a can with a picture of the dog on the front is not dog meat for human consumption. Now, I didn't just say that because I'm Chinese and we eat dogs. No, that's a racial assumption. It's actually the Koreans. 
Now, at best, these cultural confusions can lead to funny anecdotes, but at worst, they result in complete and utter social alienation. And in my case, that came in the form of a sandwich. My parents made my lunch every day, and they're brilliant cooks in Chinese cuisine, but they decided so that I could fit in and I didn't eat my stir-fry to make English food, and they decided to make me a sandwich. But they didn't know how to make a sandwich. Their idea of a sandwich was to find the most flaccid piece of lettuce possible and drench the entire thing in a bloodbath of ketchup. <laughs> now, we don't have ketchup in China, so we don't realize it's a dressing and not a base for, for food. But it just looked like someone had murdered the other person with the, with the lettuce and, and, and tried to covering up the evidence. They grabbed the closest thing, which was a bread, mopped up the evidence and chucked it in a My Little Pony children's lunchbox. <laughs> My school had a policy that if we didn't eat everything, we weren't allowed out to play. And I couldn't quite manage a whole forensic bag of CSI evidence, so I spent most of my lunch times sitting on my, sitting on my own, watching all the other kids out to play whilst all the cleaners cleaned up around me. Now, at that age, your parents are still your heroes. They can do no wrong. And if they do something you don't like, it's not them that's got the problem, it's you. But when does that change? When does a child stop believing their parents are infallible? I went to a C of E school, which makes perfect sense for a family of atheists. Now, church on a Sunday is a regular occurrence for those who believe in God. My parents genuinely thought that church service was an extracurricular study activity, and why would they not? In China, kids are born doing homework before the placentas even come out. It's not a crime to go to church when you're not religious. However, turning up with your child dressed in full school uniform on a Sunday is borderline child abuse. I can't tell you the humiliation I felt when I realized my parents' faux pas as my cheeks burnt so red, clashing with my bloody jade green uniform. And I just looked at them and I thought, you idiots, you absolute foreign idiots. How dare you bring me from a country where I was quite happy. I had grandparents. I had extended family. I looked the same as everyone else. I could communicate with everyone else. I could eat what I wanted to a new place with no prior consultation, no, no discussion with me, and no reconnaissance where I don't look like anyone. No one can say my name. I can't eat anything. And every time I try and speak to someone, I end up in the fucking toilet. <laughs> that perhaps was my turning point. Life got easier as I got older because I learned to speak English, my parents got enough money to afford me school dinners, and most of all, importantly, I learned how to repress every bit of human emotion like an English person. <laughs> now, growing up in a Chinese family, there are three acceptable life choices. Doctor, lawyer, accountant. So as I graduated my law degree and handed over my 2-1 and my student loan, I thought this would be a great time to come out as an actress. <laughs> my dad was horrified. He told me that the entertainment industry was full of drug addicts and homosexuals. Now, I've been an actress for eight years, and I can honestly say, he was right. <laughs> I cannot get a boyfriend for love nor money, but at least my dad should be glad that I inadvertently chose a life of celibacy. <laughs> now, all was forgiven when I landed my first TV role in BBC's Holby City. <laughs> And my parents were so proud. And it wasn't because it was the British Broadcasting Corporation or that it was a flag flagship primetime TV show that won some BAFTAs or that I was on a regular income. No. It was that I had finally fulfilled their dreams of becoming a doctor. <laughs> now, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the storyline, but I played a vibrant young junior doctor who succumbed to a tragic death when she, uh, she lost her battle with cancer. And as an actor, when you're given a storyline like, story like that, it's an honor and you respect it. And I had more to prove because it was my first TV job. 
We filmed 12 hours a day. We, the, that storyline took months over winter. I never saw daylight. I went home. I learnt my lines. And for added shits and giggles, I used to go to things like the Death Cafe for research. I could feel my mood starting to slip at this point, but I thought, oh, well done me. That's proper method. Keep going. And the work seems to have paid off. When my episodes aired, I was inundated with an overwhelming audience response. People wrote to me, and some went as far as to say that my character's death had provoked them into questioning the meaning of life. Some tweeted me pictures of their newly donated organ cards that my character had also was part of her storyline. And to top it all off, I found out that my last episode was nominated for a BAFTA. But at this point, fans and awards didn't matter because I couldn't give a fuck. I couldn't give a fuck about anything. I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to eat. I didn't want to see my friends. I didn't want to go to auditions. I didn't want to go to work. I didn't want to wash. I didn't want to do anything. All I wanted to do was to smoke, and not just to smoke, but chain smoke, because it meant the more that I could smoke, the quicker I would be dead. Last year, I found myself quite envious of people like Philip Seymour Hoffman, Robin Williams, and even Peter Geldof. And not because of their career accolades and their successes, but because they had the courage to end their own suffering. Now, when my rational part, the tiny rational part that remained, heard that, she thought, oh, Jing, I'm not quite sure about that. I don't think that's quite healthy. So I started Googling the best ways to kill myself. I thought pills would probably be quite a good one because it doesn't hurt and might have quite a nice drip on the way out. And that voice said, oh, no, I think you should see someone. I think maybe a doctor, a real one, please, not just your mates. <laughs> so I did. I went to see a doctor, and they quite quickly said I had quite a bad case of clinical depression, as they prescribed me 12, 12 months' worth of antidepressants and referred me to a therapist. Now, I personally think in this country we're very quick to take drugs, so I, I went for the therapy instead, because after all, I'm an actress, we do like to talk about ourselves. <laughs> she told me very quickly in our first session... You lost your entire world when you left China. It's no wonder you were drawn to acting. You've been performing your whole life. And before I could even say, no, shut up, you stupid, expensive bitch, like I was a kid, how, what do I know? I was transported back in time, like a flashback from a movie. And it was 1991, Pancake Day, and the smell of pancakes and batter and lemon and, and sugar in the air, and all the kids buzz around, all the cooking like frantic little bees, and I was really excited at this new experience, and suddenly I was paralyzed, I couldn't move. And I looked around just to check, has anyone else been hit by this like airborne zombie virus, or was it just me? Oh, it's just me. And I realized what it was. I was beyond exhausted. I was so tired, my body was shutting down. Maybe it was the jet lag. In those days, we didn't have direct flights to England. Or maybe it was the fact in China, kids that age still had naps. What I should have done was to go up to a teacher and say, oh, miss, I don't, I don't feel very well. Can I please lie down? But instead, five-year-old me looked around, assessed the situation, married it with all the evidence I'd already gathered and said, no, don't you dare fall asleep. Don't you dare. Stay awake. Don't make a fuss. Don't be different. I'd realized in that moment my survival skill in this, my survival depended on overriding what my body was trying to tell me just to fit in. I arrived in England on the 31st of January 1991, and Shrove Tuesday that year was the 12th of February. It took less than two weeks for my five-year-old self to make a decision that would change the cognitive development of me as an adult. I'd spent 
my childhood, my teenage years, my adolescence, I remember escaping who I was until finally someone gave me the opportunity to latch on to this fictitious character and live life through her eyes, through her world, through her clothes, through, through everything, through her boyfriend. And when she died, she took me with her. I think depression is one of those things that is, is going to affect quite a lot of people and there shouldn't be a stigma around it and in fact it should be renamed because depression sounds so depressing. <laughs> it should be called like time out of life, much needed break, love yourself, probably wouldn't fit on an NHS pamphlet but I do think it's your body's way of going, you've held on to that shit for way too long, you need to let go. And I'm grateful for all the experiences because they've not only made me the person that I am but they have helped me do the job that I love. So all those times I sat by myself in the school canteen, I had no iPhone, I didn't have books, I didn't have friends, I had no choice but to take myself on these fantastic adventures with something that we all have but that we don't get to use enough, our imagination. All those times I never felt like I fitted in, I had to quickly decipher what I thought that person wanted from me, build a character and present her quickly to the world. And all those times I sat in front of food that I couldn't eat, starving, just wanting to eat, has helped me develop a really useful eating disorder that makes me look fantastic on screen. <laughs> we are the product of our experiences, and the, the sooner we stop running away from them, the, the freer that we are. I'll leave you with the words of a hero of mine, Mr. Kirk Cobain. They laugh at me because I'm different. I laugh at them because they're the same. Thank you so much for listening. Jing, Lucy, everybody! Yeah. Okay, so... Uh, our next performers are rare in Edinburgh. They're not doing a show. Uh, right. Um, there, are, there are two of them, though, so I'm having to set up the mics. Uh, our, our tech's having the night off tonight, so I'm doing lots of jobs. It's fun. Okay, so our next performers, uh, you can find them on Twitter at Leo and Liam one Put your hands together, everyone, for Leo and Liam! Hello, th thank, th thank you for coming, mate. Um, um, I'll, I'd better tell you now, Alan has quit. Alan has quit. Alan's gone. Uh, Alan's gone. Um, there's just the two of us left now. There is just the two of us left on the board. So what I thought I'd do, this is the last little thing. Um, the, the bailiffs are going to be coming in about ten minutes. We've got about <laughs> ten minutes left. I thought the last thing we'd do is have a last, <laughs> we'd have a last little board meeting oh, together. No, just like, I just, just like we understand. used to. Anything about how it's happened? Uh, that's, that's what's the worst thing about it. Because we that's had part, everything. That's part of the reason why I've done the meeting. I've got a little. I've got a little list here of why of why the business is going under. But we just okay? had, we had everything in the palm of our yeah, hands, and yeah, then just yeah, two seconds later, yeah, it's just gone. Yeah, and I, I just don't know how. I know. It happened. I'm trying to. Yeah. This is why. This is why I've done the meeting. We we need to communicate about <laughs> this. Uh, Diane, Diane, if you could start tearing the the copper wiring out of the walls now, my love. Thank you. Cheers. Okay. Right. So. Um, Right, to start off with the meeting, I thought we'd, we'd start on a positive note. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah? Okay. Um, so, I'm going to talk give about... Me, give me anything, please. Yeah. Just give me so anything. So, I thought we'd talk about, you know, the, the good old days. How we, uh, how we got started in the, in the industry. Yeah. You know, what, everything we accomplished, everything we've done together. It was loads as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when, back when we started in 2002, when we started the Violent Veg um, greeting card company, there was no one else doing anything we, like what we were doing, was there? No, 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 there no was, one. No. Not one person no. had ever thought about it, ever. No, no. And it was just, I, I remember the moment that you first put... Googly eyes on a cucumber, <laughs> like it was yesterday. Yeah, yeah, and there was no one else doing the puns, were there? That was us. No. That was the first. We were the first to do that as well, weren't no, they? No, the puns were, we? were new as well. Yeah, before Mo before Moonpig came along. Yeah. So what I've got, what I've got here to cheer you up, mate. What I've got here is a few of our, a few of our greatest hits, a few of our, 
few of our favourites. I've got your favourite one here. Went down to see Dave in, in the archives. Before I, I did have to sack him, but um, <laughs> got your, your, your got your favourite one here. There you go. Have a look. Have a little read of that. Cheer yourself up. Just cheer yourself up with that. You know what? These these fucking cards, man. They just <sighs> doesn't matter how upset I am. I read that and I just can't not laugh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Colin knew he was in a rough pub when he noticed the pee on the floor. And there is literally a pee on the floor. Yeah. I got. I brought up my favourite. That, that was the first one we did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I brought. I brought up my favourite as well. I'll show that. I'll show that to you there. Look, Eddie's. Eddie got that sinking feeling as he hadn't noticed the boat was full of leaks, hasn't he? And there's. And there's the leaks. <laughs> and they are. They are leaks in the boat. Them. Yeah. And literally. Eddie there. Eddie's the potato, isn't he? He's looking. He's looking a bit sad. He's Carrot as well in the background. Yeah, yeah, what's going and, on? And the leaks, they're looking quite cheeky, aren't they? They're cheeky. Yeah, and I remember how yeah, much we laughed. We did, yeah, we loved that one, didn't we? Yeah, and I brought, I brought another one from the, from the, from the later years. I brought another one there just to, just to bring us... This is when it all started Yeah, to wrong, I mean, we were, we were having to rely on fennel there, weren't we? Rely on fennel. <laughs> oh, crap, another fennel one might apt for today, maybe. Um, so, sorry, bring it sorry, up sorry, again! Sorry, sorry, Stop sorry, bringing sorry, the bad sorry, stuff sorry, up when you're sorry, bringing up the good stuff! Sorry, yeah. Okay. Can I keep those? Because the bailiffs are just going to take them anyway. So let me just, <laughs> let me just bloody help them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So next on next on my agenda, I do have the reasons why the business is going under. Because I think that is an important thing to talk about. I do think we need to get through this. I mean, we've got we've got like six we've got like six minutes left now. They're going to be they're going to be here in a few minutes. We really need to talk about this. So I've got right. So first of all, the main one. We've just run out of fruit and veg, haven't we, mate? Just we just haven't got any. There left. are no more. Yeah, there are just no more. There's only so many jokes you can do about. And I remember when we started again. Yeah. Thinking this is never going to run out. No. You know? it's, it's, we thought it was endless, didn't we? we just, and I, I, I had a conversation about three years ago with Anton in accounting, and he yeah. said, "No, it's still fine." And yeah. I knew it wasn't. Yeah. And that's why I'm so upset now because I just yeah. wish we'd done something. Yeah. There was no. Yeah. There was no more jokes we could we could do about leaks. Was there? We'd done all of them. We've done all so did yeah. guava and yeah we've done all of them yeah I mean that's yeah that brings on to my next four point. different kinds of potato yeah I brought which brings on to my next point actually mash uh, ma yeah a, a, a collective Wedges, chips yeah which brings us on to my next point which is jacket can I can I just carry on so my next point is the just a culture of just of complacency in the agricultural and industrial sectors really. Just think about it, like before we started the company, like the late 90s, there was loads of new fruit coming out, weren't there? You think about it, like the kumquat, you never seen one of them before, had you? The okra? The guava, yeah, okra. I mean, star fruit? Star fruit, passion fruit, they were all new, weren't they? People started eating cranberries again out of they nowhere. Did, didn't they? Yeah, that was a big resurgence at that sort of time. We thought, we thought, oh, there's been loads in the last few years. They'll, they'll, just, they'll they just, just stop trying. Yeah, that'll just keep going. And, and the Large didn't. Hadron Collider's still going around, doing whatever that's doing. Yeah, I thought they'd found whatever that was that they were doing there, but it's still going, isn't it? How much more can we possibly know about the human genome? Yeah. <laughs> and they're like finding a new bat every year, aren't they? Or a worm, or a new species like jellyfish or something. But put a few seeds in the ground, it's only too much work, just isn't it? some seeds up and see what happens. Yeah. No, can't do that. No. Mental. Well, it's too much work, isn't it? Di Diane, can you just can you just double check for us when was the last fruit or vegetable discovered in the wild? Because I would like to know that just going forward. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, so the next, the next one's the biggie, really. Um, it's it's the copycat companies. They've really hit us, haven't they? Really fucking. Yeah. Hurt. I thought it'd be. It's important to talk about. 
I thought it's important to talk about. I've brought a few, I've brought a few of the cards here. Bastards. Yeah, I mean, you look at that sort of thing there. We'd, we'd done that in like 2004, hadn't we? Sending you a big birthday squeeze, yeah. all that's original. Yeah, we'd done that ages ago. Well done, we? Tesco. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's no Scum. heart in that, is there? The eyes aren't even that googly. They're just. And it's just the level of detail that we'd put into this, because yeah. I don't know. If, I don't know if people can see that, but on the letter from the fennel, it says Mr. A. Cucumber. Um, and, and it is a cucumber on the card. It's a cucumber yeah. on the card receiving the letter. Yeah. And his address is number two, vegetable patch. Yeah. And with, and with these ones, they've just like drawn the arms and, and legs on, haven't they? Whereas we did proper plasticine ones. Plasticine ones. Yeah. I mean, the research and development work. team. The, the and they're getting the same money we're getting for each card when we're putting loads more work into it. It's awful. Right, so, yeah, we're really pushing for time now um so i thought we'd end we'd try and end on a high we'd try and go out doing doing what we do best i thought because because we do do still have some shareholders don't we? we've got got your cousins yeah, my cousins we? yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> my my mum and dad are still are still shareholders uncle les, uncle uncle les, les he's still, still a shareholder yeah so i thought what we do just a little bit something nice for them what we do is we'd make one last card for them just to say thank you for, for sticking with us to the end trip out into the unknown yeah. for the boys exactly yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I thought maybe something along the lines of like, thank you for staying with us in our in our rough patch and ignoring the the advice of the financial ombudsman, something like that. Because um, he, he he made that report, didn't he? There was a bit damning. Yeah. Um, so I thought maybe we could have like the rough patch. It could be like a vegetable patch, and all the and all the veg could have their thumbs up like that, and waving goodbye for one for one final card. That's maybe that. that's really lovely. Yeah. You, you happy with that? I mean. If you want to have a think just about it, I feel like it just needs one yeah. last. If you uh, if you want to do it, I'll just I'm going to pack these computers up. So what so what was don't. the sentence again? What was the sentence? Thank you for sticking with us during our rough patch and ignoring the advice of the financial. I can't believe this is the last one I'm ever going to do. I know, yeah. Well, you you stick with that. I'll just get these. I'll get these computers in the in the van. Diane, how's it coming on with the copper copper wiring? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Ra wrap it up, my love. Okay. Cheers. Yeah, I've got it. Yeah, yeah. What? I'm Spudsman. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's been a pleasure, mate. <laughs> Thank you. Leo and Liam, everybody! Okay, so our next performer is, he's also not doing a show at the Fringe. What are we doing? What are we doing? So, uh, yeah, he's, but he does do a show in Luton called Utter Luton, which you should totally check out if you're ever in Luton. And if you're not in Luton, go to Luton. Check it out. It's a really good night. Uh, he also has a book uh, that he can sell to you at the end if you, if you, if you want to buy that book from him. So you should, have you not gone with you today? Ah, he has gotten with him, so yeah, you should see him for that. Put your hands together, everyone. Oh, I should say, he, 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 when I say his name, you might think he's going to be a, a, a comedian, um, but he isn't that comedian. Uh, he just has the same name as that comedian. So, uh, yeah, so don't, yeah, don't, 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 yeah, yeah, this comedian has the same name as him. So don't expect uh, this to be a comedian. Uh, it's not. Uh, but put your hands together, everyone, for Lee Nelson! Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Oh, I was expecting some real bay leaves to, to come in the door there. So. <laughs> you can have that one. <laughs> I stole that from Viz, as it goes. Um, okay. Yes. So this is, this is, yeah. Oh, does anyone know what the date, what, what, 
the what happened 196 years ago last Sunday. No? So yeah, that's the problem with this bloody country. <laughs> what happened 196 ago last sun, 196, look, what happened 196 years ago last Sunday was the Peterloo massacre. <laughs> Excellent. That's why I've written this piece called The Tragedy of History because nobody knows what the Peterloo massacre. Basically, a load of people went to Peterloo, well, it wasn't Peterloo, went to the fields in Manchester to listen to a chartist speak about basically forming the foundations of the Labour Party think, well, it wasn't the Labour Party, but the beginnings of a kind of people's movement. And the local militia rode a load of uh, people into them with swords and murdered 16 people, um, for basically for standing up for their political rights whilst wearing their Sunday best on a field in Manchester. 16th of August, 1819. So that's one piece of information <laughs> <laughs> which you can put in your brain pipe and smoke. Um, <laughs> And, and, and the other side, of, the other piece of information is that in west of Ireland, there's a place called the Burren, which looks a bit like the surface of the moon. It's very beautiful. Somewhere in the fusion between those two ideas. Move no stones, build no cairns. The past's not yours, the future's theirs. You don't create, you just curate. Pass on as taught, serve, stand and wait. On the Burren in Western Ireland, they have these signs that say, move no stones, build no cairns which has a sort of poetry of its own, but which otherwise is entirely dismal. The intention is to preserve the natural landscape, but the landscape is anything but natural. The burren shows human agency all over it. People have piled the stones, set them up on edge, built elegant dolmens. People have left their natural mark on the natural landscape as for other humans to see in their own time and in ours. Move no stones, build no cairns, the past's not yours, the future's theirs. You don't partake, you just spectate, you're born to serve, wait at the gate. But it's a human instinct to mark your environment, to, to leave a spore, to leave a trace, to mark your passage through the place. From cave paintings to graffiti, from Avebury to the Parthenon to the Gherkin. It's all, I was here. Letting those to come know you were here. Letting those around you know you were there to naturally mark your natural place accorded by birth in an, as a natural being in the natural world. Move no stones, build no cairns, the past not yours, the future's theirs, you'll not create, they'll adjudicate, they'll asseverate, sit down, shut up, just serve and wait. But history's over, it seems. People no longer make a mark, just respect the marks others have made. You don't make history, you watch it. You look passively and smile complicitly. You don't participate actively. You have no agency. Gaze admiringly. Look at the heritage, but don't make any. And don't make the place untidy. You mustn't move things. Please don't move things. Move no stones. Build no cairns. The past's not yours. The future's theirs. Don't create. Appreciate. Pass on as taught. Serve. Stand and wait. So you can grow debt, but leave no legacy. So you can watch repeats but, make no, but not make telly. So you can owe the past but not pay the future. So you can venerate but not generate culture. So you can buy the t-shirt but not go see do yourself. So you can charge over a foregone cliff and leave nothing of worth but wealth. But please, move those stones, build those cairns, shape your tools, bear your bairns, shape your cares, take those dares, split those hairs, arm no bears, raise concerns, reap no tears. Please, move those stones, build those cairns, show those to come the way we work, because we create. Yes, we create. We'll show them yet. You fucking wait.
tell you you mustn't touch, tell you you mustn't participate, and don't teach you what you should know, to know where you come from and where you might be going. All that, those who haven't learnt the lessons of history thing. So this one's a, so it was basically all about the same stuff. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of, uh, what's the word? Dangerous, I suppose. Um, <laughs> yeah, I like to think. What with me tweed jacket and me rolled up trousers. Um, <laughs> terribly edgy. So, uh, uh, okay, so yeah, this one rhymes and everything, but it's about, uh, oh, oh, very, very quickly, a brief uh, interrogation. There's a C word in this at the end, uh, the one you're not meant to use. Well, the, the thing is, the one that people have uh, reservations about the use of. And the thing is, in, in our language at this point in the 21st century, <laughs> history, uh, the 21st century, it is about the most powerful word we have. And I wrote a paper on this for my degree, you know, I did, yes, absolutely. Um, uh, as a Lacanian in uh, post-Lacanian kind of intro, uh, what's the word? interrogation of Freud, the notion of, of, of aggression and the fact that that word takes the aggression that we normally associate in our culture with the masculine and allows the feminine to have that aggression. Therefore, it's more transgressive. Therefore, it's more offensive to that phallocentric society. So I'm going to use it as a, as a piece of liberation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, and I like swearing. It's fun, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> But it's nice to have an intellectual basis for your, for your outrage. <laughs> I always say. <laughs> over and over again. So this one's called The Burdens of Power. Um, and it deals with the tragedy of history through the medium of, through the medium of elves. <laughs> An underused satirical device I think you'll find. <sighs> the king of the elves strode swift to his throne. The rebellion quelled the domain, still his own. There he stood on the dais, the damaged... Oh, wrong verse. There he stood on the dais, his regime to enforce with what he'd learnt on a management training course. <laughs> Fellow elves, he smiled and held up a hand. The room was still stately, its appointment so grand, all the pomp of the elvish in this throne room ingrained, but the consultant said the common touch must be maintained. Fellow elves was intended to level the field. Outside steamed the corpses where insurgents had yielded their cause to the forces the monarch had hired. Dwarf mercenaries from the kingdom of Dwanak Ufayed. <laughs> See, traditionally, the you. See, traditionally, elves fought with the stems of fresh roses. Combatants would strike swift gladiatorial poses, their poise and their battle cries judged by king's quorum. And the one who did it nicest declared victor ludorum. But this latest rebellion over pay and conditions had halted production of soft pink kitten mittens and the king's daily quail egg depended on mittens exported so the dwarves they were summoned and rebels were slaughtered. <laughs> Sour, yeah, capitalism, there we go. Um, so now was the time to restore status quo so the looms could start weaving, the mittens could flow so the king took the dais, the damage to limit through the proud use of rhetoric, language with nothing in it. Fellow elves. There was an opener to establish credentials. The king had learnt this on this long residential, all found from tax money, free beer and free maidens, a free for all for pragmatism and free word association. <laughs> Fellow elves, here I stand on this darkest of days. Yes, I summon dwarves, but they'll soon go away. I'm afraid at the time they were just necessary. The burdens of power are onerous and heavy. There's elves here amongst us. Wreckers, I call them, say that I and my wife, members of my quorum, sit here growing fat on the sales of these mittens, made, as you know, from the guts of your children. <laughs> but as was proved conclusively, I ask for no quarter by the great elvish scientist Nils Overwater, 
There's just not enough pixie dust to go round. So your children are better off under the ground. So your kids have to die. I have two of my own. It's counterproductive to cry and to moan and to ululate, holler, howl, keen, scream, be morose. If your kids have to die, let them be of economic use. These mittens we make, they're known across the world. None softer, none finer, gutfully, softly curled. They're our glory, elves' glory. Fellow elves, don't be churlish. The best footwear for young cats is defiantly elvish. And so, do you want that your kids died in vain? These complainers will say that they, they won't come again. That a life is a life once it's gone, lost forever. But you're young and you're vigorous. Go make another. And so that your lives and the lives of your children do not go to waste, we must still export mittens. The dwarves are our friends. To keep order, they'll stay here. And he pauses, breath held. There arises a chair. And it's in this way the cunts who would sell education. Ensure passive compliance from the knowledge-starved nation. Ensure the lessons of history go unlearnt, so repeated. Thanks to doublespeak, lies and cant, rhetoric reheated. We'll watch history repeat, thanks to lessons unlearnt, as the killing fields swell and the corpses are burnt. Lee Nelson, everybody! Okay, so we have our last piece of tragedy of the uh, hour. Um, so, yeah, she's doing a show called Howl of the Banty at the Stafford Centre uh, from, from now till the 22nd. So there's only a couple more dates. So you definitely should go to it very, very soon. It's at 6.15 at the Stafford Centre. Put your hands together, everyone, for AJ McKenna! So um, there's a number of tragic things about tonight. Uh, one of them is that the thing I was going to do tonight, I'm not going to be able to do because what I was, I'm doing a show at the Stafford Centre, uh, which involves uh, me standing and reading poems to people. And so I thought I've got a, a guest slot. I want to do something different. I don't want to just, you know, rant at people because I'll have been doing that for 50 minutes. So I thought, what I'll do is I'll do a performance art piece or I handcuff myself to the microphone stand and use it as a kind of improvised crucifix. Yeah. And I'm not going to do that tonight um, for a number of tragic reasons, one of, which, <coughs> one of which is that it occurred to me that because the show has to be podcast, there would be no actual way of doing that for the podcast other than resorting to the kind of oral captioning that's used in films for the blind. And that would just have been weird. AJ has handcuffed herself to the microphone stand. AJ has swung the microphone stand behind her back, knocking over the mixing desk. AJ has dropped to her knees and now can't get up. Silly AJ. So I'm not. So that's one of the reasons I'm not doing that. The other reason is that I had um, I had a show that. that um, I had a show last night where my show is quite heavy and there's a lot of swearing in it and there's a lot of stuff which is kind of, you know, based on... Uh, there's a lot of stuff about transphobia, basically, because I'm trans. And, um, and there's some quite violent bits in it. Um, so I feel, because I am a massive social justice warrior nerd, that um, I feel it's important to give a trigger warning at the start of my show. And last night I had some people come in, I gave the trigger warning, and they all left. 
Um, so I was in the peculiar position of being ideologically absolutely massively okay with that and at the same time thinking, no, no, you fuckers, come back, come back, please, no. But, but because they had left and I had an empty room, I thought, I'll practice that mic standing, I'll do that. So I, I did that um, and then I went out and I've been drinking a bit because it's the fringe and because trans people have high rates of alcoholism. Um, and so I woke up this morning and I was like, fucking, did I, did I get in a fight last night? What the fuck? I feel like someone punched me repeatedly in the base of the fucking neck. What the fuck? Turns out doing that's actually really fucking painful. So I've still got a bunch of other shows to do and I don't want to be doing them like this all the time. So, and, but I think the main reason why I can't do that tonight is because I've forgotten my handcuffs. Um, you, can come and see, you can come and see my next show next year, um, How I Failed at Being a Pro-Dom. Um, that's, uh, yeah, but anyway, so what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to do a poem which is about coming out to my mum uh, as trans, and it's, it's kind of a dark poem. There are actually some weird commonalities with some of the other stuff we've heard tonight, I think, so that'll... Um, a bit of a serendipity there. Um, there's not a huge amount of laughs in it, though. There is what I think is a really nice reference to Saturday Night Television of the 1990s, so keep an eye out for that. Uh, this is called Dear Mum. You'll get no cards or chocolate from your son next Mother's Day. And I'm sorry that you had to hear this way, but there never seemed to be a fitting time to say this. And I know that some might say that I should wait until you're finished this, your latest stay in hospital, and maybe should delay until you're safely finished your recovery phase, but this can't wait and shouldn't be a secret. I shouldn't need to worry that you'll need strong booze to deal with. I shouldn't need to worry that it might disrupt your healing if I get this off my chest. And for all I know, you might even have guessed. Because we don't talk in this family. We never really talked about how I was anorexic in my teens and early 20s. We all knew that I was starving, but we mentioned it obliquely, if at all. My slow withdrawal behind the blandest fronts, the baggiest of jumpers, was something we never openly confronted. So we never got a chance to name the cause. The cause was girls. The ones on Johnny's wall. Their bikinied, their hips just hangers for bikinis that I couldn't wear, but I could ape their leanness, teach my body to enjoy the taste of hunger until my hips too stood out, till I was lighter than the thinner girls on gladiators, that, no, than the thicker girls on gladiators, panther never jet. <laughs> I... I crashed before I hit that mark. I flew as far as Hartlepool before admitting that I had no clue what I was doing. That would be my first, though not my only summer as a ruin. But I convinced you I was doing better. Got a string of letters I could put after my name, B-A-M-A-P-G-C-E. And when I abandoned teaching one year after NQT, a graduate diploma in psychology, during which obsessively I'd sit and reread the entry in the DSMIV on GID, Gender Identity Disorder. I'm your daughter, not your son. I've read the diagnostics and conformed to everyone. And while I may not have done my PhD... That's also the opinion of the local GIC that I've been under for a year now. 
in the city where I live as who I've always been through all the years I hid behind a mask of ersatz manhood, cliched codes of masculinity, all the armor that I tightened until it was killing me, until one day I looked up and the sky above my head had turned the color of my armor, and my future looked like lead. And I decided that if that was it, I might as well be dead. And I knew how I'd do it. Find a car park or a bridge, sit with my back to the drop, lean out and simply give myself to water, concrete, or wherever I should fall. If my body was a prison, this was how I'd seek parole, and I would have if I hadn't talked to those I told, and then to others who suggested I should twist instead of sticking, move out, attend the GIC, arrange a paid prescription for finasteride so that before I got on for hormones, come out to the people that I worked with in my day job, use the money that I got from writing poems to build a wardrobe. And yes, I should have told you, but I never got round to it. But time is running out now and it's too late for excuses. So this message is belated while the card I sent was early, though at least this does explain why that card did look kind of girly. And I wrote this note to say you'll get no more cards from your son. But if you'd like, for your next birthday, your daughter could send one. Thank you. AJ McKenna, everybody! Everybody should go and see her show. It ties in very nicely with my show as well. Uh, but uh, that's not the reason you should go and see it. You should go and see it because it's good. Uh, right, so I'm going to start some... Well, am I? This is an interesting thing, but do, doing the tech and the hosting. Uh, it's an interesting thing. Ah, that's why. Starting some back, backing music. It's not an, a normal end backing music because I don't have that on my phone. Half our technician has it on his computer, but he's not here. So we got to imagine that this is kind of the end of the show music because uh, it kind of is because this is the end of the show. Uh, so yeah. Uh, oh, I'm just going to grab my uh, my my <laughs> clipboard. Is the word I was looking for there? Uh, right. It's a I've never got a clap for picking up my clipboard before, but I like it. Uh, if we could have more of those in my life, that would be great. So yes, uh, you remember at the beginning of the show... That's a bit loud, isn't it? Yeah, you remember at the beginning of the show I mentioned we're on the BBH Free Fringe, which means it's free to come in. Art, which is free at the point of delivery, is something I really believe in. But if you can support us in any way with some money, we're not ashamed to take uh, or embarrassed to take uh, paper money. Although I did find out in Scotland there's one pound notes, so that's kind of a, a bit of a trick way of, uh, of making us feel like you've given us loads of money uh, and not actually given us very much money. Uh, but you can do that if you want. You're, it's, it's up to you. Uh, yes. So yes, consider giving us some money. Uh, the show needs it. The arts needs it. I bloody need it. So yes. Uh, and uh, yeah, if you want to give us some Ed Fringe reviews on the website, people keep saying that. It sounds ridiculous to me, but apparently it gets people in. So do that. That's a good thing to do. Uh, yes. I mean, it's weird doing it without the actual theme music, isn't it? It's like a very, very weird ending. So, uh, but that's kind of weirdness is all part of tragedy and it's all part of my life anyway. I'm all about awkward moments. And basically, I kind of, I'm not going to kind of very easily stop speaking because I'm kind of afraid of silence. It makes me feel kind of complicated. So what I would do if I were you guys is I would start that. That's the sort of thing. Do that. 
Now the tragedy is over in a very different way from normal. You've been a lovely audience. Thank you very much.